It's time for a conversation about a book that matters. This is The Book Nook. From the inside, American churches are hollowed out by the departure of young people and by an insipid pseudo-Christianity. From the outside, they're beset by challenges to religious liberty in a rapidly secularizing culture. Keeping Hillary Clinton out of the White House might have bought a brief reprieve from the state's assault, but it will not stop the West's slide into decadence and dissolution. Confused and frightened Christians wonder, what went wrong and what's next? Rod Dreher argues that the way forward is actually the way back, all the way to St. Benedict of Nursia. This sixth century monk, horrified by the moral chaos following Rome's fall, retreated to the forest and created a new way of life for Christians. He built enduring Christian communities based on principles of order, hospitality, stability, and prayer. His spiritual centers of hope were strongholds of light throughout the dark ages and saved not just Christianity, but Western civilization. Today, a new post-Christian barbarism reigns. Many believers are blind to it and their churches are too weak to resist. Politics offers little help in this spiritual crisis. What is needed is the Benedict Option, a strategy that draws on the authority of Scripture and the wisdom of the ancient church. The goal? To embrace exile from mainstream culture and construct a resilient counterculture. Benedict Option Christians must learn the art of resistance with faith and creativity. They draw on tried and true Christian traditions and practices to strengthen their families and communities, revitalize local churches, create new schools, build support networks, and cultivate hospitality. They learn not just to give a resolute no to the false gods of this world, but a joyful yes to eternal truths and life-giving customs rediscovered from our Christian past. As in the early church, they embrace a limited withdrawal from the world so they can more effectively show the love of God to it. This book is both manifesto and rallying cry for Christians who, if they are not to be conquered, must learn how to fight on culture war battlefields like none the West have seen for 1,500 years. The Benedict Option is for all mere Christians, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, who can read the signs of the times. Neither false optimism nor fatalistic despair will do. Only faith, hope, and love embodied in a renewed church and resilient culture can sustain believers in the dark age that has overtaken us. These are the days for building strong arcs for the long journey across a sea of night. That's a summary of The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher. Okay, so the question I think we should begin with is, if you had to choose, which forest would you retreat into? <laughs> uh, probably the one that surrounds Rivendell in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. That one seems rather pleasant. That's a good forest. Uh, so, um, but in all seriousness, we're going to cover the gamut today when we talk about the Benedict Option. This is a book that is loved by many. It's a book that is feared by some and hated by others. Um, and so, we're going to kind of talk about why. W- what is it about this book that um, captures people's imaginations, either? positively or negatively. But to begin with, let's talk a little bit about the problem that Rod Dreher sees 
in the world around us. What what is it about our secular culture that has got him all worked up? And um, writing a book called The Benedict Option. What's what's going on in the world? Because and the reason I'm asking is because I think there's a lot of especially younger people who don't see what's happening today as um, markedly different from what's always been. And so what's going on in our world today that has someone like Rod Dreher, who I think is in his mid-50s, um, so concerned? Well, it seems that his concern is there's no distinction between those who claim to be followers of Christ and what we see the pattern of the world being lived out. And so it's a rallying cry to look. One, I think, take serious the call of Christ on your life. Uh, but two, how do you recapture, for the believer at least, in the community of believers, how do you recapture the, um, a life and a, and a stance that really does function as a witness to the world and doesn't just sort of allude to it on occasion when it's convenient? Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's not merely that the world around us has gone to pot. His concern is also that Christians are indistinguishable from that world around us. So we're we're becoming part and parcel with the secular culture. A nominal Christianity persists, but it's not distinct or or thriving in the same way. I think I think he's also, you know, addressing the phenomenon that Christian influence within the culture is waning. And at the same time it's waning, there's this uh, sort of uh, robust and energetic adversarial posture being taken by the institutions within the culture and also by even the government uh, increasingly toward, I mean, you can ask the little sisters of the poor who were sued by the federal government because they wouldn't hand out contraceptives um, as part of their health care whether they feel like the government's adversarial. And so uh, I think he's sort of exploring how do we function as believers in this world that's changed from being hospitable to Christian thought to being actively resistant and maybe even predatory at times towards Christians. Yeah, so I read this morning about a um, a preschool teacher in California that has students in her class that are five years old and younger has been working there for maybe, I think, four years now. Um, I think a new director came in, learned about her Christian beliefs, and then orchestrated it in such a way where she said, I want you to read this book to the class, and it was on um, same-sex couples. And she said, I, I can't do that. And they fired her and told her that you need to go and, and um, to training, diversity training, and things of that nature. And so – you know, the predatory aspect is definitely there. I think people are being hunted down. We heard Jack Phillips, you know, this this past uh, weekend in Illinois. And um, anyway, so the, the, the title of the, of the article that I read says, Teacher Fights Back. And so I, I think it's not only a question of should we just endure it and just say that's just part of the life of being a follower of Christ, persecution. We know that comes with the territory and suffering. But is there something to be said for standing your ground and fighting back against this kind of lunacy where you're being told to read little to little kids this kind of subject matter? Yeah, the name he would give, I think, to our secular culture that's so hostile 
to Christianity. He would call us at, at the very least a post-Christian culture and probably more specifically an anti-Christian culture at this point in America. He would probably name the culture he's talking about liquid modernity. So he uses this term a lot in the book. And it's the idea that we're a modern culture in the sense that we're obsessed with technology and what we might call progress, sort of change for the sake of change. But it's liquid in the sense that it doesn't hold to anything lasting. It's not connected to any history. It's not promoting any ideals beyond itself. It no longer believes that the world around us is connected to any sort of sacred order or anything about the way God has created things. And it's really just making it up as it goes along. And so in some ways, what makes this particular period of Christian history not the same as the generations that come before is not only are we dealing with a hostile culture, in some ways we're dealing with an anti-culture, a culture that is devoted to destroying culture. And his, his concern with that kind of anti-culture is that we'll see the, the the complete disappearance of virtue, Christian virtue, and that there won't be any institutions or vehicles for maintaining virtue or Christian identity um, and theology and practice moving forward because we'll be completely, um, uh, as you were saying, Van, indistinguishable from the world around us. So the, our institutions, and I think this is this is true to a degree depending on where you look and in, in Christian in Christendom, but our institutions are catering uh, to a large degree to the demands of the culture from from outside. We're becoming more and more like that culture, less and less distinct, and losing the Christian distinctives that um, are necessary for impacting the world. And I, and I think that that's something worth pointing out. We're going to have to talk about that at some point, uh, whether or not Rod Dreher's advocating for a wholesale retreat or whether he's advocating for a different kind of engagement. Um, but, but, um, one well, on the younger level of kids, one of the critiques made against him, against the book is that, um, they say he, you know, he highlights that it's better for children to be homeschooled and for parents to be doing the teaching, he says, and yet he doesn't address the positive aspects that can be had in public school because he claims, um, well, the critique is, uh, they would never be exposed to what's harmful out there and therefore, I would assume not know what to look out for, and that's just a really terrible argument, in my opinion. It's almost like get involved in it so you'll know never to do it again, kind of thinking. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah. So anyway, that just seems to be one of the critiques that have been made against this book. But that just shows to me just the the ignorance of of the society we live in today. And maybe an overestimation of the how prepared the church is to face such a society. Yeah. There was an article that sort of floated around uh, my my communication channels last couple of months, and it's all about the top five heresies that evangelicals believe, almost in majority. And it's things like, you know, half of them believing that um, the Bible isn't literally true, or uh, three-fourths of them who call themselves evangelicals saying that Jesus was created or not himself God. I mean, it's it's basic stuff. And so, the question we have to ask ourselves is, even if we wanted to impact our culture, do we have a church culture that's robust enough to deal with what our culture is dealing with. Do, do, do they do they have on that list? All right, it should be added if it's not. Um, God won't give you anything you can't handle. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't list that one specifically. Okay. okay. Yeah. So um, 
we've talked a little bit about what's gone on in the culture, and we could go we could go for a long time about what's gone on in the culture, but this is a conversation about the Benedict option, and so let's talk about that. Um, we can agree that 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 we can agree, I think, with with Rod's assessment with uh, the outside world and and the Christian churches. Um, overlapping with the outside world, I guess, in some, in some way, but also our, to Kyle, to your point, our inadequacy to engage uh, fully and in a robust way with the culture around us. But what exactly is he arguing for? What, what is the solution that he's descri- that he, he describes as the Benedict option? So he takes, obviously, a lot of cues from Benedictine monks, which is a uh, Catholic order of monks um, that was founded right around the fall of Rome. So Benedict ran off into the woods, as was mentioned on uh, the reading at the beginning, and began to found monasteries, places where people could retreat to devote themselves to a spiritual life fully and devoted to God. And he created what's called a rule, meaning a list of rules and practices for a Christian community in the monastery that would teach people how to live a life that was honoring to the Lord within that context. And so that kind of took the world, Europe at the time, by storm. And so what Roger is arguing is that the things that they did in terms of developing these separated cultural centers— were the way to save Christianity when the dark, quote-unquote, dark ages came, when Rome fell, the center of Christian culture fell, and and he's going to argue that that's the way that Christians moving forward are going to have to address our own cultural darkness, is by developing these disciplined, set-apart Christian communities to combat that. Any Anything else you guys would add to um, that? I, I would say he, you know, I think some of the consternation that this book was originally received with, and I want to call attention to something Carl Truman said. We were all together. I'm telling this for the people who are listening, not you guys, because y'all know we were together um, <laughs> at a at a conference last weekend uh, at, when, at when Trinity. Was this? Yeah, <laughs> right at Trinity University, and Carl Truman was talking about um, Rod. He was introducing Rod, who was speaking at the conference. And he made the comment that when Rod first wrote this book, everyone thought he, he was crazy, but that, that tribe has really decreased over the last four or five years. Um, so I think this was met originally in 2017 when it was published with some consternation. But I think the consternation, I've always believed the consternation it was received with, was more related to a misunderstanding of what he was calling for. I think a lot of people just skimmed by and saw the title and thought, uh, we're not going back to monasteries. Um, <clears throat> But that's not really what he's calling for. And Kyle, I think, hit some of the high points. I think the other things I would add is he's calling at some level for a reconsideration of the way Christians interact with the culture, uh, given that the Christians no longer sort of have, a, have the ear of the culture. We need to engage differently. And he's calling us to be more intentional about that and more thoughtful about that and less and I would argue less thoughtlessly consumeristic about what the what the culture is offering. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree um, with both you guys' summary there. I, I would I would add that 
you know, I, I read some reviews of uh, Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option before I read the book, or actually after I'd read the book. I was like, I had read the book, and I was like, I don't really get what all the hubbub is about. Why was everybody so upset about this book? Um, <clears throat> I mean, there were th- some things in it you read and you go, yeah, you know, that's mm, maybe. But at the end of the book, I kind of just thought, well, that's pretty good. Some things to think about. It's it's insightful. He's seeing the forward, you know, and but I read some reviews and and after I read the reviews, I thought, I don't think those guys read the book. Yeah, <laughs> because um, because a lot of their reviews were like, you know, I don't I don't think we ought to go for the Benedict option. I'm more missional in my perspective. And I'm like, Roger Ayer spent. I mean, he went out of his way to say this is not an anti-missional project. This is this is a this is a project that conceives of mission in a different way. We're not we're not going and becoming part of culture. We're actually calling the culture to to uh, consider an alternative, a counterculture. A yeah, Christian he's culture. he's saying uh, here's an we need to offer an incarnational alternative to what the culture is suggesting. Uh, is good. And that there's an attractional element when, yeah. you, when you do that. You're not saying, we're just like you with Jesus too, which is sort of the, 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 the common missional mindset, I think. But you're saying, we're nothing like the world around you. Yeah, because it's like churches look at what's trending in the world, society, and then we make our own little subculture of that and slap Jesus' name on it saying, all right, then they're going to come because of that. Yeah. It's like you all know. those Christian rock bands in the '90s had yeah. their secular counterpart. You know, it's like, so, oh, <laughs> oh, this is hooting the blowfish for Christians. Exactly, this yeah. is smashing pumpkins for Christians. You know? I liked uh, the analogy because when he was asked the question um, in an interview about uh, how some would just view this as a retreat to just run for the hills, kind of thing, he gave the example of the movie Dunkirk. He said, had had um, when they were on that beach, had they tried to take the German military head on, they would have been annihilated. He said, but they retreated back to England, gave them time to rest and regroup for a full engagement. A full engagement, yeah. They were taking the long view of the battle. Yeah. They understood where they were. And they and he even said if they had stayed there on that beach, they would have been annihilated. Yeah. If they right. had just sat there and waited it out and thought, well, just yeah. waited out here. Either way, you engage or you wait, you get annihilated. But if you if you retreat for a time for the building up of your of yourself and your army then you can engage in a fuller uh, and more victorious endeavor later. Yeah, I think he viewed it as strategy, not retreating. This is strategy and how mm. you deal with where you're at. A strategic retreat, yeah. Strategery. Strategery. <laughs> Some serious <laughs> strategery. Yeah. And it comes from a conviction in Roger's mind that the church has lost its own ability to understand its own faith. That not only are we not engaging the culture we're actually not engaging ourselves in any serious ways so for Mm -hmm. him it's a lot of listen not even the kids in the church are learning what the church believes not even the people in the pews are learning what the church believes Mm -hmm. um and so it's not simply just that we're not impacting the culture we're not even maintaining our own christian convictions within the four walls of the churches we've got yeah that's right and the other thing i think to consider here on some of these critiques you get the, the Benedict option is sometimes it's it's referred to as like a cop-out. Well, you're just tired of engaging the culture, so you're going to go retreat into your little Christian commune. That is just the, the, the least thoughtful response you could give a book like this, because there'd yeah. be nothing harder than building a counterculture. 
Nothing that would require more work, more sacrifice, more intentionality, more deliberate thought about what's truly Christian and who's in the community and who's out and what those markers and boundaries are. And there would be nothing more difficult than building a counter-Christian culture. So it's not a cop-out. It's not like you're choosing the easy road. Anyone who does this, who attempts something like this, is, oh my goodness, doing a hard thing. Um, And and all of his... Christian countercultures, which I think is probably the best way to describe the Benedict Option, a true Christian counterculture, uh, all of the communities he advocates for are porous, meaning that they're designed to be welcoming. He talks about his time he spent in the book with the monks, the Benedictine monks in the hometown where Benedict came from, and he spends some time with these monks, and it's fascinating getting to hear his story of how welcoming they are, how engaged they are with their community, that there are people coming from all over the world just to sit in silence in the abbey with these monks and eat the food with them because what they're doing is so intriguing to a culture that doesn't have things like tradition, things like history, things like discipline, and a view of the world that's transcendent. And so his, his argument is not, let's go hide He's saying, let's create something so that when people come to us and when we invite people to be with us, they go, wow, this is different. So I like, Kyle, your the word you chose. I like the word porous. And I think that is how we need to understand. These aren't fenced in communes. These are porous communities. We're still There's still an engagement with the outside world, but we're, we're intentionally and thoughtfully building culture, Christian mindsets, Christian worldviews, and Christian value sets um, that... Uh, that can shine brightly in the darkness around us. So the 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 book, the Benedict Option, was taken from a uh, inspired, I, I would say, by Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. There's a sentence in in that book that Rodrier cites, and um, and he kind of pulls his title, his thesis from this from this passage, and that sentence is this: If the tradition of the virtues was able to survive the horrors of the last dark ages. We are not entirely without hope. We are waiting not for a Godot, but for another doubtless very different St. Benedict. Now, Alasdair McIntyre, um, uh, he actually criticized the Benedict Option. But what's funny is, he seems to have missed the point also. Because one of the things he says is um, that the, the social order that he thought Rod Dreher was calling for was, first of all, a markedly conservative thing, and Alistair McIntyre, McIntyre prides himself in being neither liberal nor conservative. Um, he's above all the rest of us. Uh, <laughs> but, but what he said was, um, one of the things he wrote was that this new social order was largely independent of the feudal order because uh, of a symbi- symbiotic relationship that developed between monasteries, which provided schooling and liturgy and local communities, which provided novices without which the order of monks would die out. So his point was, well, the monks, what they did that's better than the Benedict option is the monks actually had this engagement with the wider culture. They provided schools and and goods and things, and then the wider culture provided novices. They did, would send their people in. Did did Alistair McIntyre make it past chapter five? I know, that's, <laughs> I, that, that's exactly my point. It's I think a lot of people who have these reactions, they, they latch on to something that they're afraid Rod Rare's arguing for, and it becomes the boogeyman that they try to strike down, you know? I think, because I, I hadn't read this book till we decided to do the podcast on it, and I remember it swirling around Christian academic cultures whenever it came out, and I remember 
imagining this boogeyman of a book that people were so up in arms about in many in many cases. And when you boil down what Roger Ayer is advocating for, a lot of it is not super, super crazy stuff. It's just sort of it's leaning into a non-conformist view of Christianity mm-hmm. in a culture that is so obsessed with believing that the only way for us to engage our neighbors is for us to be as much like them as possible. Yeah. I think maybe what's happening in, in within people, when you get these kinds of reactions, it's, you know, it's more of a conviction that's uncomfortable because it's opening your eyes to what should be. It's kind of like a Josiah moment. You know, you're reading the word and all of a sudden you're cut to the heart because you, you're reminded of this is what God's called us to all along. Why is this such a surprise? And so now we're trying to figure out or we're having to make a decision. Will I live my life the way the Lord intended for me to? You know, um, what's the end game here? What's my goal? Where Are my eyes fixed on on Christ on the finish line of, of crossing? You know, and um, so I think maybe it's – People's unsettledness is is really more just um, not so much because they disagree, but because it's conviction and they they have to square with it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, in Roger's own words, this is the way he describes the way that the Benedict Option would engage the neighborhoods and communities surrounding these these Christian churches he's advocating for. Ultimately, I think Christians have to understand that yes, we have to be countercultural, but no, we don't have to run away from the rest of society. He says we have to be a sign of contradiction to the surrounding society, but at the same time, we have to be engaged with that society while still nurturing our own community so we can fully form our children. Mm -hmm. I think that's the goal. Yeah, that's a great summary. And it's a great sort of rejoinder to those who say, well, we can't just retreat into a little commune. It's like, well, he would agree. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Rod would give you a hearty amen, you know. So here's a question for you guys. Is the Benedict option biblical? Why or why not? Uh, well, I mean, if you take the Hebrews passage that we often cite to our own people here at Lake Ridge, you know, uh, don't give up the assembling together, as some are in the habit of doing, I think, you know, this, the, the encouragement and really the command to, to rally together um, for the teaching of God's word and all the more as we see the day approaching is is essential to who we are, you know. And so I think in that sense, you could say, well, some of what he's advocating for is 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 biblical in, in its motivation, I guess, mm-hmm. and and in his thinking. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, yeah I, I would add to that. Maybe you could turn the question around and say, is what we're doing now biblical? Right, uh, because I think that's the challenge he's throwing down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is uh, mm. and you know just to take the section on community, um, <clears throat> he he has a whole sort of unpacking of the consumerist mindset with which people approach their involvement in church today. I, I'll try to find it, but but he he talked about the fact that uh, he used to go to church and. Um, and, and just kind of leave when it was over because he didn't think those um, – here's what he says. The church is, is not always a sign of contradiction to this modern lack of community. He's talking about the, the, the fact that people kind of just hide in their homes and accumulate things. <laughs> and he said, in the first decade of my life as an adult Christian, I left church as soon as services were over, 
getting involved with the people there was not interesting. Just Jesus and me was all I wanted and all I needed, or so I thought. You might say that I wasn't interested in joining their pilgrimage, that I preferred to be a tourist at church. Hmm. The consumerist approach to the community of believers reproduces the fragmentation that is shattering Christianity in the contemporary world. And we've talked before in here, I think, uh, if not in here, at least among each, you know, our own conversations with each other, about this uh, mentality that um, you're not investing, you're consuming mm-hmm. as a in your role at church. So I think what Rod is calling us to is, in terms of our involvement with our local Christian community, is far more biblical than what we're actually doing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, 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 there's a verse that um, stands out to me when I I was thinking about this question myself. How would we? What would we say it's biblical, and what would we kind of look to in Scripture to say, "Yeah, here we see some some examples of this kind of thing." Um, and it's the admonition that Paul gives the church in Rome in Romans twelve, when he says, "Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind." And it's exactly what Paul's calling the church to: a conscientious, deliberate mind renewal project. Where we're we that's are, at odds with the world. That's that is specifically not conforming to the pattern of the world, which I think so many churches are desperate to do. They're rushing to the conformity to the pattern of the world um, river and wanting to swim in that. When Paul's saying swim in an entirely different river and call the world to yours, yeah. and just the example of the early church, I think, is a helpful corrective in our view of what the church is about, what the church was shaped like. So to say that the Benedict option is biblical, I would say it's at the very least, it is a contextual strategy. Like all strategy is contextual. And I think the day that the church finds itself in now, in which we no longer have sort of cultural validation for most of the things we believe, we're sort of past the, the age of Christendom, where our culture is saturated with Christian thought and Christian ideas, even if it doesn't agree with us all the time, um, means that the church has to adopt a more first century church model of what we're doing. And the first century church was a community within a community. It was, we're going to be going to the synagogue, we're going to be going to the temple, but we're going to be breaking bread in our homes, meeting together and devoting ourselves to not only the teaching of the apostles, but also the sharing of life in common. And the prayers, right? Yeah. yeah. So the, the spiritual development of our souls. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then that took on very concrete forms. I mean, even in Second uh, Thessalonians, we see this passage where he encourages people to work with their hands and to live a quiet life and to share right. in common with the produce of their work. And so right. there is a sense in which Christianity has always had a practical bent to it in terms of the communities they were forming. Yeah. And I, I would also add to this conversation that you, you can't turn the whole church into a monastery. And even the Benedictine monasteries, when they existed or, or when they were st- started in the 6th century, they weren't the whole church. They were a part of the church that was carrying virtue forward in their times, in their way. So there's, I, I guess, and even, even Rod talks about this. He says we need to be building institutions for... Um, as vehicles to carry virtue and Christian thought across the dark night, you know, through the dark night to, to a new morning, right? 
Um, and so, what would some of those institutions be? I mean, the church, any local church, could could try to form communities. But what, what would what would it look like in practice to start Benedict Option institutions? One of the things he talks about is homeschooling. But what would that look like? And and what else could we look to? Home teams. Home teams. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, oh, shameless plug for yeah, like rich ministry activities. Yeah, home schools and home athletics, home teams. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we've got the um, Academy Hero Wednesdays that we're doing now, the co-op. I guess yeah. that's one, one way to get the ball rolling. Yeah, for churches to offer um, uh, counter-cultural childhood formational institutions yeah. that – that teach them not only how to count, but what actually counts um, Ooh. in life. Ooh. You like that, Kyle? That was good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been preaching lately. <laughs> he, he also talks about, uh, one of the things I love about, actually, what, he's, what he says in here is, he, he kind of suggests that, that there's a lot of things that will come out of rejecting not just the content, but the medium with which content is influencing us and so he says get rid of your smartphone or at least you know fast from your smartphone get rid of the internet get rid of television he talks about just sort of uh, basically clamping down on the floodgates and then he says and do this instead Um, create bands create choirs do art teach art classes and and help people produce Christian art Uh, grow gardens um, and and participate in a local, you know, farmer's market. I mean, he has this sort of, it, it's, they're all just examples, none of which are right. sort of this positive, the answer to what he's proposing. But what he's suggesting is if you, if you cut off these time-consuming and influential uh, inputs and you devote that time to other things, then um, you can do beautiful things and constructive things, and he particularly calls out, focus on what's true and beautiful mm-hmm. in, in terms of how you spend your time. Yeah, there's a book called um, Building the Benedict Option, which was written after this one, obviously, and it was written by a young woman who was sort of highlighting how different communities around the country and around the world had taken what Rod Dreher wrote here and taken it to heart and then put it into practice. And none of these little Benedict op- Option uh, communities look the same. They've, they've all, some of right. them are devoted to kind of an agrarian, um, you know, garden building type thing. Some of them are doing art and uh, music together. And so there's there's different little pockets of countercultural movements that we could call Benedictine, I guess. Yeah. Um, In the world of work, he advocates for creating networks of Christian businesses. So actually connecting together various businesses that are run by Christians, have Christian principles, uh, look to hire employees that are either Christian or at least not hostile to Christianity, Mm -hmm. and allowing those businesses to actually help each other out and provide each other with resources and also provide people with places they can go and use their their hard-earned money instead of spending their money in places that hate their values actually spending their money to support their neighbors who are trying to live out the same life of values that they have. Hey, Kyle, what would it be like? You know, he talks about asceticism, which is this notion of a physical 
deprivation. Depriving yourself of physical things or in undergoing physical discipline as a spiritual discipline. And he talks specifically about fasting. Uh, but I, I guess got to wondering, how would it, what kind of reception do you think it would get among young people to say, you know, a modern spiritual discipline is putting your phone away for a month uh, mm. versus, mm. you know, fasting for a month? Um, how would how would people react to that? Do you think? Hilariously, <laughs> I would say the parents would be harder to convince than the kids. That's interesting. Isn't Most it? of the time, when I advocate for youth putting away some of these platforms, whether it's phones or now, I don't know if I've gone quite so far as to advocate for a month before, but I have given students times where I said, "Hey, you need this. You you can't have this right now." For various reasons. Right, sure. And they're usually rather receptive to that idea. I th They know. They're, they're smart. They're intuitive. They understand that there's something happening to them something with these wrong. devices. Yeah. Interestingly enough, it's sometimes harder to convince the parents. Not because the parents are more wicked necessarily because than Because they want kids. to be able to reach the kids? Is that the idea? Yeah, they want to reach the kids. They want they, – they enjoy the security net that comes from constant communication with their, with their youth. And – because I think a lot of adults are just as addicted as the youth are to these things. Well, sure. and I, I would even say cell phones are a hub. They're not. They're not even exactly the problem. For sure. Like, for like sure. It, it's a hub technology where all the other problems exist, sort of cohere. So, so I would say, you know, you could you could keep your cell phone and keep contact with your parents, but get off everything else. Get off social media. Yeah, delete I'm, your apps. Yeah, log said, out. I've said almost since the day they came out. <laughs> that I would be happy if my smartphone just was a good phone. I've never been able to get a good cell phone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Good, good reception. Yeah. yeah. You have to work really hard. I've had family members try to get dumb phones from the major carriers. Yeah. And it is a process to convince yeah. them that that's actually what you want and yeah. that they can find it for you. You're less so. valuable to them if you're... I think one challenge you could put forward is, you know, so if you have the phone or not, I mean, the, the challenge would be you know, no meaningful conversations over social media or through text. That it has to be face to face with somebody. You've got to recapture those skills and learn. You know what it's like because that's one of the effects I've seen with people. They they struggle with being able to look you in the eye and have any kind of meaningful conversation over anything because uh, we've been so buried and retrained to think in a in a way that it only happens through our our thumbs <laughs> you know a guy you know? told a guy told this story this weekend when we were all there it was a really fascinating story about being on a lake or some something with his son and his 14 year old son wanted yeah. to um get on jump off this big rock and he finally said yeah you can do it but you can't take a video of it and you can't post it on social media and all of a sudden he he completely lost interest, lost interest in that i've had this similar experience <laughs> Where you know you have young people in particular on social media who for are strangely drawn to self righteous virtue signaling. I don't understand exactly why. Um, and I've interacted with them on occasion, some of them, and they want to. It's like they're itching for a public debate. And I've actually said to them on occasion, "Look, I'm going to answer your question." short in a short form here this one time and i'm i really would love to engage with you on this but here's my contact information you're going to have to engage with me privately and i will engage t 
to at whatever depth and length you want to go, and invariably that becomes less interesting to them. Yeah. Mm. You know, I, I think nobody that, else gets to see it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's not I, performative. I, I really think that there's we've got to get to the point where we're willing to acknowledge what social media, how it conditions our minds to care about everybody else's opinion about us. Mm -hmm. When I was still on social media, I realized there were experiences and thoughts that I was having that I was actually having and filtering through the... um, the, the, the status post, the picture post, whatever it is, how am I going to uh, project this experience for the consumption of everyone on social media? And so I, I wasn't even able to experience life with my toddler son without thinking about wh- how might I post this moment? How could I capture this in a witty way for everyone else's consumption? So here's what that does. It means that young people and adults alike, regardless of age, if you're on social media, you are being conditioned to think in such a way that garners the most affirmation and likes from the world around you. And so you're being deconditioned to think in a way that's countercultural um, and to think in a way that isn't acceptable or will, would be affirmed by the culture around you. You'd be shocked at how well you're able to think if you just get the heck off social media. Well, and social media creates, especially for the seniors that I interact with, they they use these social media platforms, and I think we all think of Facebook, but that's really not what they're on anymore. They're, yeah. they're on things like uh, Instagram is even sort of a bit passe at this point, but Discord and some of these other places where it, it's mimicking the micro-community idea that I think actually Roger is talking about in the book. It's actually giving them the illusion of these smaller communities, smaller groups, sort of their group of people, but it's being filtered through, to your point, Ben, these uh, media companies and platforms in such a way that it's it's hijacking what could be a very, very healthy impulse Mm -hmm. and not giving them any of the benefits that could come from a real, small, close-knit, in-person community of practice. Mm -hmm. That's that's why I never get on MySpace anymore. (laughs) You've had enough. (laughs) You were a big big, uh, man on campus in MySpace back in the day. (laughs) I find that Van is large in any space he's in. Um, So I, I, I would also say the um there's another vehicle that we could that we could talk about and it's not an institutional vehicle it's the vehicle of tradition and i i think that tradition has the capacity to carry values um across time and space better than almost anything else and we've sort of we 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 bought the lie a long time ago that tradition was um a symptom of dead faith But it's not. It's just not true. The things that we do, you know, think about it. There are things that I do every Christmas that my parents did with me every Christmas. And those are the traditions that have so much meaning to us and that connect us to the past and that sort of imbue our lives in the moment with shared values across time. Mm -hmm. And, And if the church doesn't wise up to that, and start willfully um, and conscientiously imbuing the, our gatherings with more tradition and own it, call it tradition, embrace it as tradition, celebrate the tradition. If we don't do that, then I think we're going to continually be swept downstream by whatever cultural uh, push happens to be of the moment. So I think 
that's really good and i think especially in 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 um in pushback on the current moment in which the, the kind of the popular and hot thing to do is to perceive of everyone who came before you as less enlightened and uh morally flawed mm-hmm. yeah or, or at least more morally flawed than you and so i think the notion that we have something to learn from those who came before us and that it's transcendent and permanent uh, is really a healthy counterpoint to the the current zeitgeist. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that stood out at our conference we went to. Remember that, Jeremy? Oh, wait, you weren't with us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, when uh, Carl Truman was just talking about things we could borrow from the Orthodox or the Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox or Catholic churches, just that tradition and things that they could borrow from the Protestant Church and um, I was talking to. I was at the airport last night, uh, picking up Leslie and another lady uh, that uh, she went on a trip with, and they were asking about the conference. And I, I brought up this point about one of the things that kind of stood out to me, and borrowing things that we need to recapture. And uh, she said, "Yeah, I find that when you walk into churches like a Catholic church, you just there's just something that grips you about the the aesthetic of it all." and and how they function, but um, anyway, that's just something that kind of stuck in the back of my mind as, at the conference. That, um, and in some ways, we're afraid of tradition because we've believed in this sort of cultural myth that that which is um, coming from me, stemming from me, my own personal taste, must be superior. It must be more true to myself. Mm-hmm. One of the things that uh, Dreher talks about in the book is the way that the monks learned that submitting to a rule, because these rules were, were binding, that they were living in, in these communities, actually trained something healthy in them. It trained them to deny some of their own desires and to submit themselves to powerful and important authorities in their lives, to learn actually the definition of faith which is to obey something that you may not always understand, believing that what you will find in the end is better than if you just sort of did it your own way. Mm-hmm. And that's an instinct we don't train in a lot of churches anymore. That's not something we're training our youth to value, is to have an instinct for the ancient and to yeah. believe that maybe what we're given is better than what we can make up ourselves. So there's a great quote I've been sitting here thumbing through my book looking for this quote while you guys are talking but I'm sure what you said was awesome you, um, you, you weren't listening to everything <laughs> <laughs> um, no I, I was tracking with you but I was also I really was thumbing through well, my Vance's book Vance's comment was a little sketchy right? it was okay well maybe this will be a helpful corrective <laughs> Jeremy's to crying. whatever it was that Vance said um, so so uh, this is something from Roger's book he says we must not reject Christian liturgical tradition for the sake of being relevant or anything else not if we understand worship as primarily formative, not expressive. It's an interesting thing to say. He quotes a, a pastor named uh, Ryan Martin from a rural fundamentalist church in Minnesota. Um, not someone you, you might think would be embroiled in liturgy, so to speak. But he says, we detest entertainment as worship. We believe that God is to be worshipped in a way that communicates his transcendence, as well as the warmth of the gospel. Contemporary worship manipulates. God is not a fad deity. 
to attach him to our own little slice of popular culture fails to do justice to him as the transcendent God over all history and cultures. And there's something about tradition that transcends when it's ancient, truly, and we're not just sort of coming up with our own traditions, because we could come up with a tradition to sing, Lord, I lift your name on high every Sunday. And that's fine, but it, it, that's, not, that's not a tradition that goes, well, maybe I, I would argue that's not fine. We shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, but but that's, not, that's not something that's celebrated across time and space. A, 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 the best traditions are some that are shared by the most people who share the same values, the mere Christians around the world. Well, and to, to push that statement a, a step further, every church, every community, every family is embroiled in tradition. Just some of their traditions are more ancient or more grounded in, in Scripture or mm-hmm. more connected to the life of the church than others. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't sort of sit down every week at Lake Ridge and sort of throw a bunch of ideas into a hat and right. make something up every time. We've got patterns that we've developed over time. They yeah, just, well, our, our greatest tradition is our benediction. Benedict. Yeah. Shun. Hey. That's our Benedict <laughs> option. Um, but it really is. So we give a blessing at the end of our services. And it, you know, some people think it started with the pastor who preceded uh, Van. And, um, but it's not true. Roger did not make up the benediction. It's actually kind of ancient, it's, it's a couple, few hundred years old. Um, and you know what's fascinating about that? There was, a t- there was a time for several years in the youth ministry where. They were so the, – the youth are so enamored with the benediction, by the way. They absolutely adore it. They'll, they'll quote it sitting there mouthing along with it during the service. And there was a several years at camp where we would get done with one of the main sessions at night, and the entire youth ministry would stand up and shout at the top of their lungs as a choir chorus the benediction yeah. because they knew that was part of who they were. And it had formed them, and they couldn't make it through a camp week – you know, without a little bit of silliness, of course. Yeah, of course. But it was it was important to them. Yeah. Well, there's and that's insightful um, or informing because uh, there's a growing number of young people who are leaving, and these tend to be thoughtful Christian young people who are leaving the churches where there's nothing but flashing lights, blaring speakers, and skinny jeans to be seen um, and heard heard from. They're going to churches with more depth and historical transcendence. Flannel graphs, overhead Flan- projectors. Flannel graphs, yeah. and overhead projectors. <laughs> the real we got, we got to get back are, to that. Are the thing. <laughs> one, right. one young woman said when she left her sort of mega church, evangelical church context to go to a small, I think, Anglican church, she said, I was looking for a church that would resist me. Hmm. Every church on the planet caters to the 18 to 35-year-old at some level. She was looking for a church that didn't cater to her, mm-hmm. but would resist her. So, because she knew she wasn't all that. So, I think this really gets to a, a Benedict option issue, and that is, um, he talks at one point about the criticality of hospitality, and um, there's a song there. Yeah, I think so too. I I like those. There's a rhythm to what I just said. Jeremy, get on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we need that next Sunday, we need Jeremy. Some, we I'd need like that you to work my next that yeah. Criticality. Um, so, um, <laughs> so I think I had a conversation. This is what makes me think about this, and you're talking about this business of catering and sort of how that integrates with the notion of a community and a counterculture setting. I had a conversation with a good friend of mine who's a leader at another church, kind of a mega church, in a in the metroplex area 
and they're trying they're wrestling with how do we reach out uh how do we sort of invite in um more people who are sort of single and adults and and whatnot because their community they they realize that the number of those people at their church is sort of underrepresented relative to their community and his thought was um we got to sort of de-emphasize the family and emphasize more you know sort of uh uh single you know, ready unitary christians yeah. you know and uh and my comment to him was no don't do that um what you need to do is you need to have a culture where the families are embracing and adopting these single christians into their families and making them a part of their lives i told him a story about um a young lady that uh used to be at this church who as a very young woman got breast cancer and we along with several other families kind of adopted her into our lives and invested in her life and i remember the day when her hair was falling out and it was just to the point where it just couldn't go on looking like it was looking but she didn't she was embarrassed and chagrined to go to a hairdresser and get it sort of trimmed off and so my wife ben's mom offered to uh cut her hair for her and she came over the house that day and the two of them went in the garage and cut her hair completely off and wept together um, in that moment. And this is what I think is, I think he's calling us to this kind of community in this mm-hmm. book. And I think it's it, it highlights the fact that um, you don't cater to celebrate someone's <coughs> atomicity. What you do is you you open your home and your heart to people and you build real community by making these kinds of investments in each other's lives. Hmm. So one of the major problems that I think Dreyer is trying to address is building this kind of community in a way that's enticing to the next generation of Christians that we have, saying this is what we want for you in the church. Um, You know, youth are obviously very close to my heart, and I know it's the same for you guys. What would you say is the greatest barrier that the Benedict Adoption addresses like what are some of the good solutions maybe that the benedict option provides in terms of communicating the faith to the next generation of christian believers i would say an unashamed unhindered proclamation of the gospel and of truth um i think we apologize or water down way too much um God's word when we share it, teach it, preach it uh, to a point where there there's no draw. On my way to the airport last night, um, we have Sirius XM in the car, and so there's a Billy Graham station. And I was sitting there. I probably listened to five messages waiting for uh, Leslie's flight to, to get in. And it was just this recapturing of a man who – only cared about one thing and it was just being faithful to proclaim the truth and i mean it was just so refreshing to my heart to listen to um him him preach and uh it's and what the spirit can do with that is just an incredible thing the power um that that the lord 
enables uh, to come about through the Spirit's work in an individual who understands their purpose and is faithful to the call. Uh, I want to be that. I want to be like that. And I think that the Lord, you know, when we raise up the name of Christ, things are going to happen. And so in our in our reasoning and how we, if, if we've kind of, without realizing it, have been sucked into the culture ourselves, and we've kind of played this game of how how can we look like them and sort of sound like them in order to draw? If we can remove ourselves from that and just get back to believing the truth of what God's called us to, I think that's the draw. Um, no apologies. Um, so I think also, um, you know, when we move beyond tourist tourist trap church, so to speak. <laughs> Um, I think when we move beyond that and we actually engage in real relationship within the body of Christ, yeah. I think there's this organic cross-pollination that starts to occur across age boundaries and generational boundaries. And so I think we need to make the kind of investment in which the the reality of the the grounding and commitment of older Christians it is made evident in the lives is is just obvious because they're connected and in in community with the older Christians on the part of the young people. So I think um, I also think you know as we move into this adversarial culture and uh, I think young people and parents of young people need to be seriously recommitting, reconsidering uh, traditional paths for moving you know, to the point of into adulthood for these young people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe four years in a secular adversarial college may not be the right path. But I think we have men who have skills that they could mm-hmm. hand down to younger men. And if we were really making an investment, again, and not just drive-by cr- – church members but fully invested then there would be time and interest and investment made in uh, helping young people make that transition to adulthood acquire needed skills for economic reasons that sort of keep them out of the reach of those who would do them spiritual harm yeah i think i would I would add to what you guys have said that um, it's a it's a helpful reminder to everyone, to young people, too, but for everyone that the church is not of this world. It is in this world and for this world, but it is ultimately um, from and unto another world. and And I think the Benedict Option captures when we do it where we can. And, and to the extent that we think it's helpful, I think it captures some of that. And I would also say um, it it builds Christian culture that outlasts each generation and doesn't sort of have to reinvent itself in every generation. And so to the young people, I would say consider the Benedict option because one day you'll be 75 and and you'll either be still relevant, the church you're living in will still, you're going to, will still value you, and you'll still recognize it, its forms and features and expressions, or you'll be wholly lost in the community that, that you worship in. 
um, because it's had because the church is clamoring for in for um, contemporary relevance in every new moment. And so consider the Benedict option because it may actually um, it, it may be uncomfortable now, but it could pro- it could possibly be a huge boon to you in your old age. <laughs>